Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay, Stack Waddy game. Who's going first? Shall I go first? Go on. All right, okay. So album titles that were considered and eventually abandoned. All right. All right? Good one. Okay. So The Queen is Dead by The Smiths. One stage was going to be called, here's four examples. One of them is fictitious. Okay. Queen is Dead. One stage is going to be called Margaret on the Guillotine. Okay. Caribou by Elton John. Uh, one or one section called Old Pink Eyes is back. <laughs> Low oh. by David Bowie. The notion was to call it New Music Night and Day. Mm. This is good. This is Sunshine on Leith by the Proclaimers was at one stage going to be called Super Cali Go Ballistic. Celtic are atrocious. <laughs> no, 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 no. Go on, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> and. And uh, Hail to the Thief by Radiohead was going to be called The Bony King of Nowhere. Okay. Well, that's all very good. Uh, but The Proclaimers is, is, the, is the wrong one. Is that an obvious ringer? Well, it's kind of... It's, uh, it, it, I don't think it ever was a newspaper headline, was it? It's just It was. Of, oh, was it? Well, oh, no, it was. About... There was a newspaper headline for oh, I, I, Inverness I, Caledonian Thistles' yeah, shock 3-1 yeah, victory yeah. against uh, Celtic in the, in the Scottish Cup. Oh, well, okay. It really it was, was a real headline. Okay. So it was going to be. Okay. Yeah, have, yeah, I, yeah. have I identified the right one? <laughs> okay. Rather too quickly. Hey, no, it's a good, it's a good category. Very good category. Very but good. But you can imagine that Margaret on the guillotine would have been. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a shoe in for a. For oh, Pink Eyes is basically. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Here we go. Krautrock. Krautrock. Okay. Okay. One of them is not real. Uh, these are all crowd rock groups. One of them's not real. Okay. Cluster with a K. Yep. Frumpy. Yep. Energy Cottbus. Agitation Free. And Embryo. Cluster, Frumpy, Energy Cottbus, Agitation Free, and Embryo. 
God. I'm saying, well, Frumpy is so ridiculous, it must be true. Um, energy clock bus also <laughs> is so extraordinarily complicated and dramatic. That's true, too. And was it agitation free? Yeah. That's just odd. So that's true, too. Embryo, possibly false. I'm saying, to be honest, I think the one you've made up, though, is Cluster. <laughs> I win. I no, win. No, you're kidding. It Cluster, Cluster's real. Uh, Energy Cottbus is a German football team. <laughs> oh, no, you're kidding. That's fantastic. <laughs> very good work indeed. So very good. Okay. No, I've been, I've been you know, absolutely humiliated there. No, we Disastrous haven't. performance. Because uh, well, we did a we did a, a special word in your well. They say it's your birthday recording this week. We did a couple of them actually, didn't we? We did one with Jeff Reese. Yeah, and he was the first person to come on and say he sprung. He sprung gonna, some on us. I spring a Stackwaddy game on us, which we had to spot. We had to spot the ringer amongst uh, amongst five Welsh groups because Jeff's Jeff's Welsh. It was a very good idea. It was so, really uh, good. So if anybody is there anybody finds themselves, do in send any in. No, I think uh, everybody has a, a, a stat wadi about their person. Yeah, somewhere. they do. They do. There's yeah. probably some area that they specialize yeah, 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 in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. made a special study of. So I tell you what, I watched on telly. I don't watch a lot of telly, as I bored you with in the in the past. But I found myself gripped in a horrific way on Friday night by turning on telly, and there was Cliff Richard's summer holiday on. Oh yeah, I saw a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. To mark to mark his 80th birthday. That's right. And uh, I don't think I've actually seen Summer Holiday since 1963, which was when it came out. And um, I just found it. I, 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 I watched it with horrified fascination, I think it's fair to say. Because I always thought it was fairly kind of straightforward, you know, uh, pop jaunt around Europe uh, on a double-decker bus. Such as might be undertaken by any bunch of uh, of bus garage employees in the year nineteen sixty three, and you know, so so my memories were were all related to the bus and going out the garage and all that kind of stuff. And and what I found instead was I it was plunged into this bizarre kind of travelogue around around Europe. Uh, containing all kinds of strange pastiches of musical comedy items. Do you see this? I saw about half of it. I know that's, it wasn't it extraordinary because see, I, I I thought it was a movie. I, I remember it as being a movie like Hard Day's Night, which is kind of a movie punctuated by pop songs. But it's not. It's it's a no. full on American style musical with suddenly a factory floor at the bus uh, factory or a French Square or highway is transformed into mass choreography, and not just kind of voguish twist action but there's kind of waltzing and calypso and it's pure family entertainment isn't it you know it, it is it made it, me wonder if there was ever a time when cliff was even vaguely vaguely hip because that's, that's the th that's the interesting it, thing is that yeah. the, there's nothing in it where they where the filmmakers and it's made by peter yates who subsequently was quite a uh, distinguished director he directed bullet the steve mcqueen film yeah loads of other things and, um, you know, it's made a lot, with a lot of know-how and obviously quite a lot of budget. But they must never have thought, we're going to aim this at some notional youth audience. You know, <laughs> there was no sense that this is what it's the kids not, are up it's to. It's not what the kids are up to. It's a it's, mass market. Family it's all, it's all about what the kids could do if they embraced the glory of, sort of family entertainment. Yeah. 
and uh, and there's the most bizarre sequence takes place, I think, in is it Austria or something? It's supposed to. Yeah, it's supposed to be Tyrolean, I think. Anyway, uh, as part of their journey when they they're going they're going all the way down to Greece, aren't they? Yeah, only up in Athens. And uh, it has a, a whole production number, uh, which I see is referred to on the soundtrack as really waltzing. And basically, it's a Viennese waltz it number is. based on uh, a, a recent hit film came out in 1962 called White Horse Hotel, which had probably been, been really popular with my mum and dad's generation, you know, who were not going to go and see Summer Holiday. But there's Cliff and, you know, Eunice Stubbs and all the gang dressed up in, in all this stuff, doing a kind of sub, sub-Strauss waltz number. It's absolutely strange. It's completely bizarre. Because I, I agree, I thought it was aimed at pot pickers. But no, yeah, no, not remotely. No, 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 granny no. would enjoy it, you know, the whole it's yeah. a mass, mass multi-generational thing, isn't it? Except granny would, would probably say, I'll tell you what, doesn't Gene Kelly do this kind of thing slightly, slightly better? better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, can he dance a bit better than Cliff Richard? Yes, he probably could. And so the production numbers, as you say, it's kind of French parks bursting into, into bizarre life and, and song, you know. And, and a really long kind of mime spoof number featuring Ron Moody. Ron Moody, exactly. Ron Moody. None more 60s light minutes. entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> The much that I love Ron Moody, but you think, what is this doing in this film? It is, you know, it's it's like, you know, it it's a strange watch. You know, if you've got nothing better to do on one of these gloomy winter days, it's probably on the BBC iPlayer. No, I was gripped by it, actually. I was gripped by it. Yeah, it's so sort of fascinating. You think, how could this possibly be? <laughs> you know, it's be? just... And Cliff is absurdly wooden and cheesy, but... Uh, but somehow weirdly entertaining, actually. I just, I mean, I quite enjoy He's it. oddly likeable, I think. Yeah, he is. And, uh, you know, well, uh, you know, anybody who survived that long, you think, hats off, for goodness Absolutely. sake. Absolutely. You know, at the top of your tree, you know, who are we to carp? But he is kind of wooden, you know. But, Completely. But he's also, as I discovered many years ago, and then, then quite how many years ago it was, when I happened to be on Centre Court Wimbledon, when he rose from the crowd to... Oh, you were there, en- were you? I remember, yes. Because it was all across various... T- all the BBC, all, 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 other, all other channels, they were saying, turn over to BBC One and watch Wimbledon. Because well, because it was, you know... What happened? It was, rain- it was raining or something? There was some it? rain delay or something, some weather yeah. delay. It was probably in the days before the retractable roof and all that kind of thing. Mind you, they need, they need hours to retract roofs. Um and so Cliff was there, as Cliff very often is, you know, using one, uh, wearing one of his many kind of uh, many many summer jackets that always look, you know, he always I always felt that Cliff came from the same tailor as Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett, you know, you know, there's if you want a powder blue sports jacket, powder blue, he's, slightly he's linen. Meant, Lime green. Sleeves, sleeves kind of shunted up slightly. Yeah. Tangerine. All, yeah, yeah, all your right. favourite colours. Yeah, it'll yeah. all be there. And no, but he, he, was, he was a big tennis fan, player, supporter, a patron. And uh, he always turned up at Wimbledon every year. It was a big deal for Cliff Richard. And he was always, he was always turned out in this particular, this particular kind of gear. 
and he rose from the crowd. So he got a microphone and he entertained the crowd, if I can put it that way. <laughs> With a with a bunch of the living doll of his old summer children. holiday, it all shook up, I think. Well, I, I I I mean I can't remember the set list. I just remember my, my awed fascination. I'm just looking across and think, good grief, why would he do this? Because can you think of another popular entertain musical entertainer who would do that? Paul McCartney's not going to get up and send no, he's not. and give you because he's going to think that would be grotesquely gauche <laughs> and it really would There's and no self-interested he's elton john getting it no he's not gonna no. Do, you know not without a piano or anything you know he, he, where's cliff there's just something about him he's kind of he's unsinkable he's unembarrassable no he's um, programmed to do it isn't he? he's just hardwired <laughs> And so, you know, I think I'm not sure a lot of people got a lot of pleasure from it. You know, fair enough. I'll tell you the other thing that struck me watching Summer Holiday. Summer Holiday, what a strange but really kind of, um, you know, persistent song Summer Holiday is. You know, is there anybody in the country who couldn't sing Summer Holiday to you? You know, well, partly revived by things like the young ones, wasn't it? But yeah, you know, the, the whole cliff concept kind of came back in the early 80s. But yeah, it's really enduring, isn't it? It's also, I think, really good. That's what I mean. We're going where the sun shines brightly. We're going where the, the, sea, the sea is, is blue. blue. We've, We've seen, seen it in, it the, in movies, the movies. So let's see, let's if, it's see if it's true. See, I can remember uh, my family, we never went abroad, actually. Okay. We always went to drizzly coastlines in the UK for our holidays. <laughs> we went is that to, a special place? We, uh, Daddy, we go to drizzly again. Drizzly <laughs> coastlines, yeah. <laughs> can we get see to you drizzly? There. Can we see it yet? That's right, I know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. actually, the idea then that of France and Italy and stuff was incredibly exotic and rather romantic, wasn't it? Oh well, we we had our first overseas holiday, I think, in 1961. So we were slightly ahead of the curve. Yeah, but um, but that was a that was a two weeks in in a dormobile kind of camper van thing, during which we did I think seven countries. We <laughs> had one of those. We had a Bedford dormobile. <laughs> was it the same one with a sliding door? And, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, horrible thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's all. And he, did he used to have the engine? Was the engine canopy between the between the two seats in the front? I think I think the, it would have been. It was, and there's a strong smell of diesel. That's all I can remember. Um, we used we used to dry dry beachwear on the on the engine canopy while ploughing through the Dolomites in Italy. Can we stop, Dad? No, we've got to get to. No, we're going to get his towel dry. <laughs> It was seven, seven countries. Not until the socks are ready to put on again. We, we did France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Italy, and back. God, Two in weeks. A dormobile. In a bloody dormobile. So, so a Cliff Richard bus would have been quite luxurious as, as compared to that, you know. But no, the, the song Summer Holiday, hats off to those who wrote it. Foremost amongst them, Bruce Welsh. And uh, Jen and, Harris? Uh, no, no, the drummer Brian Bennett. Brian Bruce Bennett. Good work. Bruce, very good work, and no doubt very Bruce good. Well, surely still must be still coining from that, mustn't he? Well, well, probably a decent kind of yeah. decent living will come will come in via that. Talking of which, I was um, I was speaking only the other day to a neighbour of mine, uh, Morris Bacon. 
who is around about my age, and was um, was the original drummer in the Love Affair. Remember the Love Affair? Yes, so indeed. 19... Everlasting Love. 1968. Everlasting yeah, Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love on a mountaintop, I think, and another one I can't remember. Steve uh, Ellis was the singer. Steve Ellis was the singer. And he was telling me this still gets, you know, they get a check every every year from CBS or whatever. <laughs> you know, how long ago is that? Well, that's incredible. Know, it's, what is it? 50, 17 pounds, 23 pence. <laughs> well, no, I know he said it's worth having. It's worth having, you know, just for a, a kind of day's work in 1968. It's absolutely astonishing. Uh, and he, t- he was telling me that when um, the when Everlasting Love went to number one, when it was number one in the UK, 1968, he was 16 years old. That amazing. Because <laughs> we talked to Morgan Fisher, didn't we? In, yeah. In one of the word in your attics, who was also a member of Love Affair. I think he'd left at that point, but he came back later yeah. on. And he was, he was probably around about the same age. So 16 years old. And I was reminded. But you've been reading that book about Peter Frampton, haven't you? Yeah, the, there uh, you go. Uh, do you feel like I do? The memoir, which has just come out, uh, Peter Frampton's memoir. And that's what struck me was that he was so young. You know, Peter Frampton was at school, age fifteen, when he was offered a job uh, in the Preachers, who were managed by and I think produced by Bill Wyman. Am I right? Oh, yes, that's right. That's and right. Bill Wyman, obviously being very well connected with Ready, Steady, Go, got them on Ready, Steady, Go. And so at the age of 15, while still at school, he's on national television. It's incredible, isn't it? Age well, 16, he, he joined the herd. I mean, you know, Billy Gaff had offered him a job. There's a brilliant bit where his dad negotiates a fee for him. His dad works out that the minimum wage at the time is £15 a week. Yes, he insists And he insists that his son cannot join this group. And they say, OK, so they put him on £15 a week, which is actually slightly more than the others are getting. But a bit later, they got a residency at the Marquee and they're all making £35 a week. But he's still contracted to be on £15 a week. <laughs> and he, he very much regrets uh, his, his father's decisions. But, I mean, it's just uh, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? Well, it is. He was on TV three years before, I think, was it three years before David Bowie was? David Bowie, who was three years old. Oh, you mean, I really... Who was, yeah, he's made from school. Because his dad, Peter Frampton's dad, was the art teacher, wasn't he? Yeah. He was the art teacher who taught David Bowie. Um, and, um, no, it's a reminder, that story, and, and talking to Morris the other day and thinking about the Amen Corner... That 1968 was the kind of second great age of screaming in Britain, I seem yeah. to remember. You know, <laughs> and so you had groups like Amen Corner, The Herd, Love Affair, and uh, I don't know, possibly the Tremolos. How did they? Maybe, maybe they weren't cute enough. Oh, maybe they were. I don't know. Who used to attract hordes of, of absolute, really noisy, screaming girls, and so and so literally they couldn't hear themselves play. But they were immensely popular and they all had absolutely huge hits because I suppose all the other groups were suddenly growing their hair long and growing beards and trying to be interesting and deep and fascinating. And so there was a great gap for anybody who came along with a, with a singable, whistleable tune who had a cute lead singer. That was, um, that was one of the key things. And, of course, Peter Frampton in The Herd was the cutest one of all, because famously described as the face of 1968 by our current Which caused all sorts of problems. It really interested me reading that that whole section about how much in those days 
how much creative control the management had because they were managed by Billy Gaff and then they were taken over by Ken Howard and, Art, uh, and Alan Blakely, Alan Blakely who, who, who wrote uh, Have I the Right for the Honeycombs? He wrote all those Dave D. They Dave wrote D. Dave D. Dave D. Dozy yeah. hits. And they just said, right, we're the managers. Uh, you're the singer. You're going out the front, which Peter Frampton didn't think he ought to be. He seemed to think that uh, there were two people better qualified for, for this job. And uh, they can, they organised that. They turned him into the star at the front, quite rightly, actually. They wrote Absolutely. I Can Fly. They wrote From the Underworld. Yeah. Then he was, uh, they, they had all these hits. As you say, there was a, a piece by, was it by... Um, Oh, was it Penny, Penny Valentine? Valentine? I think it might have been. saying he was the, the for disc and music echo, saying he was the face of 1968. Of unbelievable friction in the group, and pretty much began the disintegration of the group. Yeah, I get, it's a classic case that because I wouldn't mind betting that Penny Valentine or whoever wrote the thing never wrote the words "face of 68" ever. That would have been done by a sub. Yeah, the sub. Or the editor would have put that on. <laughs> And and that's yeah. the thing that everybody remembers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no doubt she had to spend ages apologising for it afterwards. So n- nothing you can do about it. And um, you know he was t- stuck with that ever since. And so you know he can, his name can never be mentioned in all the many years since without that being mentioned. We're doing it again. That's we're doing, absolutely. We're doing it again. Immortalised. But I'm kind of I'm all, I'm I'm interested in. Um, in the subject of handsomeness in rock. And uh, I, he was terribly handsome, or terribly cute, wasn't he, before he was handsome? Ridiculously handsome. <laughs> He's got a model, model yeah. cute, which is slightly a problem in rock and roll. It almost strikes me that if you can be too... Can you be too good-looking for rock and roll? Discuss. You see, I think, you know, Jim Morrison just too good looking makes people suspicious am i right in saying in what that? way suspicious well you just think there's something about rock and roll that makes the people think that they ought they ought to appear to be fellow strugglers like yeah he didn't look lived you know. in <laughs> that's right you know hasn't suffered somebody like mick jagger who kind of made himself good looking by by he, re, he redefined good looks it's like strikes me mick jagger you know he said, no, I'm really good looking. Yes, me with the big mouth that my mother used to describe as always a mouth like a set pot. A set pot, that's right. <laughs> never understood. Not sure what that is, but... Ever, I never, ever. It's Every great. time they appeal to tell it, oh, she's got a mouth like a set pot. <laughs> and um, so he re- redefined good looks, whereas Peter Frampton looks as if he was a prisoner of good looks. You know what I mean? That... But, and all, and he, throughout the book, he complains about it, doesn't he? He complains about the fact that he's put on, on the cover of Rolling Stone when he's got the solo album out with no shirt on. It's almost as if he was tricked into doing this, you know. And uh, yeah. all I want to do is play jazz and play blues, and now I've been turned <laughs> this pop idol, it's all ghastly, and girls scream at me, and you think, mate, please. <laughs> he thinks you do protest too much. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, got, it's got loads of remi- reminders of the, uh, of the things that... Um, bands do when they get a few quid particularly in those days and so when they when he signed with with humble pie they got um they got advances for the uh for the uh for the albums i think he said we we've all gotten twenty five thousand dollars each year for four years so we all bought cars <laughs> i bought a 1965 aston martin db5 the james bond model <laughs> Steve got a DB6. Greg 
Greg Ridley, Greg Ridley out of Spooky Tooth, got a Bentley Continental. You know, what, what's he going to do with a Bentley Continental? Where's he going to put it? And Jerry, Jerry Shirley, the drummer, got a Rolls Royce. You know, you had to though, didn't you? Well, except it's, it's interesting, but I was reading status symbol. I was reading recently, rereading Ian Hunter's Diary of a Rock Star, a rock and roll star, for my book about bands, you know, because it writes a lot about the Mott the Hoople touring in the United States. And I think he wrote, it came out in 74 or something, but I think he wrote it in 1972. It's based on a tour in 1972, I think. So he goes, he goes off on the tour to America and he asks a mate to look after his car while he's away. And okay, this is my question to you, Mark Allen. What kind of car did Ian Hunter have in 1972? This is Ian Hunter with the mad hair and the big, the big shades, and you know, all the young dudes and and all the way from Memphis. Although, what kind of car? Well, you'd ex- surely you'd expect him to have an E-type Jag, but you're gonna tell me it was a some kind of really prosaic old-fashioned it's, he, it's an Austin he, Cambridge. He had a Ford Anglia. No, I wasn't far off. <laughs> no, an Austin Cambridge was quite big, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. A yeah. Ford bloody Anglia. That's absolutely extraordinary. Incredible. When Jerry Shirley was going out buying a Bentley or yeah, yeah, yeah. a Rolls Royce or whatever it was. But um, the other person who's mentioned a lot in this book, and uh, I think he's mentioned quite liberally now that he's dead, is is uh, D. Anthony. Oh, D. Anthony. The D. Anthony story is amazing, isn't it? Because because they, they, he's not made much money out of the herd. He's made some, but not that much. He feels. And then they go to humble pie and they expect to make huge amounts of cash. Hire D. Anthony in order to crack America. D. Anthony's uh, three rules of success were: get the money, remember to get the money, and don't forget to always remember to get the money. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? It's very good advice. Still That's to this great. day, I would have thought. And actually, he had some. He didn't really succeed with humble pie. He didn't really deliver for them. But he did when when he was managing Frampton as a solo artist. Then it worked out, didn't it? But it's a D. Anthony. I I saw Humble Pie a few times, and 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 D. Anthony was always in evidence. He was always there whenever they played. Yeah, I saw him at Walthamstow Tech or whatever it was down the road from here, and this would be God, nineteen seventy one probably, and um, and he was always there at the side of the stage. He looked like Benny the Ball out of Top Cat, you know, <laughs> slightly a rounded figure. And he got a large cigar, you know, and um, and he looked like an archetype of a, of, a, of a slightly intimidating American manager figure. But it's quite interesting if you look into him. He died in two thousand and nine, I think. Um, he was one of those guys who came up. He he his friend from school was a was a kind of saloon singer called Jerry Vale, and he managed him. And then he ended up managing Tony Bennett. You know, he graduated to, to managing Tony Bennett. And so what he brought to rock and roll when he started... You know, Jethro involved, Tull, didn't he? And, and, and later on, did Jay Giles Band, I think. Devo? Jay Giles Band. Jay Giles Band. ELP, possibly? I think possibly ELP in America for certainly part of the time. But it's interesting that what he brought to all these acts was an understanding of showmanship. And so he would go along... Uh, I watch Humble Pie, you know, as he did in the early days. And he said, all right, let me tell you what the good songs are. (laughs) I don't care what the ones are that you want to play. These are the the ones that work. 
these are the ones that work. And he's the one that said, hallelujah, I just love it so that you did, which they did was a Ray Charles song. And he said, no, you start with that. You know what I mean? And he told them so much kind of about pacing, about, about how to deal with a room. And, um, and, uh, and if you watch the Jay Giles band, you know, pretty much the same vintage, they, they gathered an awful lot of this stuff as well, you know. And so everybody, British acts who made it in the States, had to understand showmanship, had to understand how to hit the back of the room, you know, which is, um, you know, which is what people like Jethro Tull were really good at. Because Phil Manson, sorry, I'm going off on a slight tangent here. Phil Manson, no, good. Phil Manson era talks about when Roxy Music first went to the States, which I think probably 72 uh, or maybe 73. And uh, and they came trailing clowns of glory, you know, they were huge in Britain. They could do no wrong. And uh, and they ended up supporting Jethro Tull at uh, Madison Square Garden, <laughs> you know? and uh, and they just went on and did their thing and died like a louse in a Russian's beard, you know, <laughs> and and didn't really make it in America until the eighties, I think. And um, but Phil Manzanero says afterwards, he realised he went watch Jethro Tull afterwards, and he just realised. It's a different game. A lot to learn. It's totally. a, boy, I've got a lot to learn. Yeah, because you, know, you can be one, one called, thing in a little club in, in, in London and suddenly you've got to project to 18,000 people. To Unbelievable. Project. You've got to let people know what you're doing, you know, and take them. Everything you do has got to be very slightly exaggerated. Yeah, absolutely. Slow down. The Street Band that. is so good at it. Yeah. There's a great quote in the in that Frampton book. Uh, 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 sorry, you're going back to that for a second, from Cameron Crowe. Where he says it was like Frampton's talking about his success with with uh, Frampton Comes Alive, which was was it the biggest selling record at the time? It wasn't. It, it was. World? It was huge. I yeah. think huge. Was before Thriller and all that. He said it was like Frampton was strapped to the nose cone of a rocket and shot into space. He landed on the moon, and when he got out, there was nobody else there. <laughs> that was really good. Good line. Because you line. just kind of no one. Had, no, there were no maps for that kind of success. No, no. And actually, I think Frampton's pretty well preserved. Somebody who went through all that. I mean, it was astonishing. And it was D. Anthony whose idea it was, wasn't it, to, to put out the live album? To, well, to, to, well, that, that was D. Anthony's D. Anthony's uh, solution to the problem of how do you break acts who don't really have hit singles? You do live albums. Yeah, and he did it with Jay Giles, and you know, and he did it with Humble Pie, and and later on did it with Peter Frampton. It's quite interesting. He also talks about in in this uh, talk about the Humble Pie uh, live album, Rockin' the Fillmore, Rock On. Have I got my copy? Can I can I reach my copy? I don't think I'm not, I'm not quick enough. Um, and uh, oh, I think I can. Yeah, I've got it here. There you go. Very good. Oh, that's great. Humble Pie performance, rocking the film. That's great. With loads of pictures on the back of them on stage. Of course, you wanted nothing more than loads of pictures. Completely. That's all you want. Total fantasy. That's the perfect album sleep. It is. You can't get anything better than that. Men uh, smoking cigarettes. Men with cigarettes and the machine heads of their guitars. Absolutely. Bottles of Jack Daniels on their amps. And he, he, um... He talks about he talks about when D'Anthony, I think, first heard it and, and, and heard the other mixers, and said, "Where's the, where's the audience?" And basically, they, it had originally been mixed so you could hear the music. She said, "No, I want to hear the audience. I want to hear the excitement." So they went back and remixed it. See, and so you listen to it now, like you listen to loads of those successful live albums at the time, 
And what you, you get a, such a really strong sense of is the audience. And that was so exciting. Incredibly exciting. The, the notion of the audience. So, yeah. so that, that's what happens with live albums in the, in the early 70s, I suppose, that, that they're kind of produced. They're produced like movies. They're movies that you can't see, aren't they? You know, it's that sense of drama, you know, that they're very often the open to the sound of a crowd. I really that's, thing I, well, that's just the thing I remember so distinctly when it came out, the, bang, the sound of the Bangladesh audience. Yeah, it was a lad to bring on a friend of us all, Mr. Bob Dylan, what it is, and that incredible sound. It's a thrill of just wishing you, you'd you been there. It's absolutely amazing. My favourite bit from that time used to be his terrible record, Crosby, Tills, Nash & Young's Four Way Street, their live album. The best bit of it is uh, Neil Young doing Cowgirl in the Sand just acoustically, and he just he just you just hear him playing the first few chords. And then his voice just starts, hello, cowgirl in the town. And the audience just goes, Whoa! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's massively exciting, you know. And you just wish you'd been there and uh, wish you could have relived it. But, um, but yeah, Frampton. So and then he found what a out story, Frampton. that D'Anthony was taking 20%, 20, oh, yeah. 20% of his gross, <laughs> not the net, 20% of the gross. So he had to keep out on the road, you know. That's how the manager. That's how the manager pays for his beach house and all that kind of stuff. But he, he opened, there's all sorts of suggestions that there are kind of mafia people it's, involved. It's not. There, it's know. not suggestions. No, he no. Says, he yeah. says it. There's yeah. a bit in Humble Pie where they where they run into two other managers because Steve Marriott decided he wants to leave, and Steve Marriott is 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 physically threatened to the point where he just doesn't dare leave the group. I mean, it's it's pretty uh, pretty hard headed management, and this is Steve Barry's been through Don Arden already, so he's got some experience. This kind of thing. <laughs> yes, that's Honestly. true. That's true. The so, sad is the sad moment on on the Frampton things where he records on all things must pass. He's rung up by George Harrison to come and play on my new album, oh, and yeah. he's, he's on all things must pass and all the sessions. He never gets credited on the album. Heartbroken. Oh. What just name missed off? Yeah, just missed his name off. Oh, that's poor. I know it is pretty poor. That was the days of shabby album credits. Yeah. You know, you know Mandolin Wind, my uh, Rod Stewart from Every Picture Tells a Story, um, which is um, a lot of it is owed to the the mandolin player. Yeah. You know, the mandolin introduction. All yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Who never um, gets a credit, I assume. He says, <laughs> says all the credits. Again, I wish I'd got it here. I've got it here somewhere. It says, um, it says a mandolin on Mandolin Wind is played by the bloke out of Lindisfarne. Can't remember his name. You're kidding. <laughs> that's appalling. That's how things It's almost a court case. <laughs> well, I think, I think, I think Ray, it's Ray Jackson who was the mandolin player in Lindisfarne. And I think subsequently has, let's say, sought restitution. The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Okay, we're back. And, and uh, any other business, business, and we're joined by Alex Gold. Uh, Alex, uh, and I've actually found the Rod Stewart, Every Pitch Tells a Story uh, album cover. Uh, and he, he, the credit goes, the mandolin was played by the mandolin player in Lindisfarne. The name split, slips my mind. Nice. That's mean, isn't it? <laughs> it's sh- and I was just shabby. I, I, I'm issuing this challenge to people out there. Yeah. 
Are these the shabbiest sleeve credits you've ever seen anywhere on a podcast? Yes. Because also, he spells Ian McLagan's name wrong. Okay. He's a member of the Faces. Spells Madeline Bell's name wrong. And can't even be bothered to find out who was, what's the name of uh, the, the mandolin player in Lindisfarne. And nobody else, nobody else looking at it at any, any point in the proofing process goes, Rod, it's, it's actually Ray Jackson. Shall we put it in? They just leave it as it is. The intern was fired shortly afterwards, I'd imagine. <laughs> so Terrified he, to, to take it up with him, I think. You know, If Rod Stewart says that's what he wants, that's what he wants. It's his album. Or oh, is it the ELO record that we were talking about recently? The, the is it the second ELO record? Is it ELO? Whose record came out in the states under the name No Title? That's right. Because <laughs> somebody rang up and said, "What's the name of the record?" They said, so that, "It has no title. It's got no title. It's, it's no title. That's right. No title <laughs> is what it was." Yeah. So, Alex, how you doing? You're right. Right. Yeah. Not so bad. Do you do you think it's possible to be, to be too handsome for rock and roll? Has this ever bothered you at any point? Uh, it hasn't bothered me personally. Have you ever held you back? Have you ever gone in the group with a person and thought, "Ah, oh, not I'm not lining up with him. He's too good looking." Well, you see, I've got I've got a theory that it's okay to be too handsome if you're slightly to the side of the group. You mean? Yeah. So I always if, if you're see. Two, I mean, um, so if you're not the front man, that's all that's, right. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Give us some examples of people who are too handsome at the side. Uh, I would say exam examples from sort of my my little um, plot of time would be Carl Barat from the Libertines. Oh right, okay. Who uh, at the you know at the time was sort of you know number two. Let's face it, but um, he was gorgeous and he was acceptable because right. he wasn't right in the middle. Okay, that's and, good. That's uh, Nick good. Valencia of The Strokes, who was unfeasibly handsome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah, the yeah, guitarist, yeah. so was allowed to be. Um, Julian Casablancas, the singer, had some, you know, he was very good looking, but a little bit quirky as well, you know? Nick on the side was 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 model handsome, but um, he had the green card because he wasn't in the middle. See, model, model handsome is the way to look at it, isn't it? That yeah, is the yeah. different, it's a different kind of handsome, isn't it, than rock oh, totally. I'm thinking of a of a, a similar example example from an earlier generation. I don't know if Mark would agree with this. When Klaus Vormann joined Man from Man, he was really good looking, but he played the bass. Fabulous. So it, it, it sort of didn't matter that he was better looking than Paul Jones because he wasn't the guy. Like, like John Paul Jones and Led Zeppelin, best looking member of the group by some margin. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Fine. Keith but Moon, not flashy. Keith Moon, best looking member of the Who. That's true. Yeah, again, that's true. Allowed- Keith Moon before he was dissipated, really good looking. Keith Moon, amazing looking. Yeah, Re- really striking. Before the bloat. Before the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> terrible, that's right. Terrible victim of the bloat. So you know, if anybody's got any further suggestions for model handsome guys who are off to the side of the group, I think it's an interesting and um, it's an interesting scene. So what have we got to housekeeping? Have we got any housekeeping we have to do? We've got a few shows coming up. We've got Billy Bragg. We're doing a word in your attic, aren't we? I think we are. On Wednesday. We're and we're doing, doing, we're interviewing the, well, the guy who wrote the, Andy Neeler wrote the fantastic. Can you lift it? There it, it is, in fact. Oh. The Can You Lift It? The Ready Steady Go book. That's a Which tale. is amazing. Wow. It's an amazing book. Really extraordinary. Real labor of love. It's a really is exceptional. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, what have we done in the last week? Uh, we spoke to Rob Halford at the Judas Priest. 
about his uh, autobiography. Uh, and that's up on YouTube now and uh, and usual usual places. But the way this whole thing works, we do all kinds of things. We do podcasts, we do video casts, we do quizzes, all kinds of things. But there's only one way to make sure that you get all of this stuff and you get it before anybody else. And that's to sign up and be a supporter on Patreon. And if you want to know about that, just go to patreon.com slash word in your ear and find out more details as these people have done in the last few days i think alex can you tell us indeed we we, we have uh, some new recruits um we have peter pettit uh, and royston vince who are both annual patrons and it's worth oh, very good that if you subscribe annually you get a hefty 15 percent discount um we have paul conahan alan wallace who is an access all areas patron of right. course, with the access all areas tier, you get your very own word in your attic. Word in your attic for your well, on your birthday. On your there's birthday, a, there's a special. We come to your home digitally and it's allow you digi- to go through your go, go through your. We are not readers. We don't come. In fact, <laughs> we come. Digitally. Terrible thought. There's something rapping on your door. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, it's like Danny Baker with a you know a packet of Daz. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what everybody's looking for, is it? Really? No, that's no, not. And we have Nick Deves. Right. Okay. Well, you. well, welcome all, uh, all of them, and uh, and I hope they'll be, they'll be joining us for the uh, for the Friday night quiz uh, coming up next Friday, as usual, and uh, and see if they can enter the competition, climb the leaderboard, uh, amongst the other great rock brains that we have assembled on Friday evenings. Uh, what are we all doing this week? We're all just sitting at home, aren't we? Is that right? Is anybody as is, doing as is the time? nation, as is the world. Yeah. Are you going anywhere, Alex? Are you? Are you... Uh, I'm going to Levington today, actually, to drop off a CD that I need mastering. But uh, I, I might as well be going to the Riviera. You know, it feels really exciting. You're that excited. Oh, yeah. You got <laughs> up early, got dressed. It's so exciting to go out. I can't wait. Okay, so, uh, well, we'll see you on the other side. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.